We've got a bit of a climate change roundup this week with our friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And then we're discussing her side project, wherein she examines the narrative around Indian residential schools here in Canada. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. You know, since COVID has receded, we've gone back to the same old emergency, catastrophe. The old thing that they used to use to control your life and where you went and what you could eat and the kind of car you could drive, how far you can get away from your house. That sounds a lot like COVID, doesn't it? And that's climate change. The politicians who were hell-bent on controlling all the comings and goings and your interactions during COVID, well... COVID's gone, and so they have to go back to the old one, climate change. And there are a few different ways that they are using climate change to control your life. And one one of those ways is infesting the banking industry with climate hysteria, which will lead, of course, to carbon social credits. And if you think that's just a conspiracy theory, they're already doing this sort of thing to major energy projects. If it doesn't meet climate targets, well, maybe the bank won't finance it. Maybe the insurance companies won't insure it. So it's a bureaucratic prohibition on an already approved project. Neat little thing that they're doing. And then after we discuss that with my friend Michelle Sterling and a a whole host of other issues, we're moving into something else that she has been acutely focused on. And that is the facts around Indian residential schools here in Canada. And she's not just a lay person on this issue. She is someone who worked in Alberta history in particular for a very, very long time. And so she's got a lot more expertise than the people accusing skeptics of genocide denial on the issue of Indian residential schools. It's a long show today, so I'll just be quiet. Let's go directly into the interview. So joining me now is my friend and good friend of the show, Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And there's so much to talk about on the climate front because now that COVID has receded, We've gone back to the old emergency that's going to kill us all, and that's climate change. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. I wanted um, to talk to you before we get into some other things about um, you had sort of made a list of things that you wanted to talk about, but there were some things that I wanted to talk about, too. But I I noticed this week, and the the reason I sort of mentioned COVID is because there is a a woman now suing CBC um, and several levels of government and officers of government because of the propaganda that she fell victim to with COVID. And she ended up with uh, Bell's palsy and severe vaccine injury. But And so there are attempts to hold CBC and the government responsible for their bad, flawed messaging there, or at least uh, their messaging that wasn't entirely honest. And um, I see that you've done a little bit of deconstructing CBC's, uh, what would we call 
misinformation <laughs> on another front and that's climate change. So, um, and, and I watched this as you did it. It was a live show deconstructing CBC's propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, the deconstructing uh, CBC's propaganda. This was um, about the uh, fault lines report, which also contained a lot of COVID material as well. And basically, the fault lines report was set up by um, the Canadian Council of Academics or something to that effect, uh, or Canadian Council of Academies. Anyway, a multi-million dollar organization, basically government funded, and um you know, we were the only group picked out by name in it. But, you know, when you go through the CBC report, you see that they're trying a new method of indoctrination and propaganda, which is, uh, you know, telling a story narrative. So, in a way, I feel bad for Jayla Bernstein because, um, you know, the the live stream that we did really takes her to task because, um she was not reporting on the story. Instead, she was creating this kind of narrative, storyline narrative to draw people in. And then they put Stephen Lewandowski on screen, and he's a uh, professor of cognitive behavioral psychology. He's the guy who wrote the very famous paper called NASA Fake the Moon Landing, which and then um, he tried to apply to all dissenting climate scientists that they're all conspiracy theorists. So this may be starting to sound a bit familiar to everyone. Anyway, he said almost nothing, um, but in his interview, and um, really the, the fault lines report that Jayla did, was not reporting at all. So within that live stream, I did uh, sort of like, what if she had been reporting on actual things in the report? Um, uh, so, you know, have a look at it and see what you think. But yeah, CBC is, you know, not not informing the public. They're actively misinforming the public on so many things. Now, one of the things that I think should have been all over mainstream media it happened in May and I didn't see it anywhere except on the friends of science YouTube channel. And that was that wind power in Alberta went to near zero. And this was chilling to me because of the federal push for net zero policies. They don't want even fossil fuel backup when it comes to green energy on the grid And I didn't see this reported anywhere, that there was a complete and total collapse of wind energy in Alberta in late May, except at Friends of Science. Tell us what that would have meant for us. First of all, tell us what happened and what that would have meant for us if there were no such thing as uh, fossil fuel backup for our grid. Well, it's actually, there was one media report, and that was Brian Zinchuk of Pipeline Online. So he did the first report of it, and then I picked it up and basically read his report as a video message because, you know, it reaches more people and some people don't read. Anyhow, um, uh, yeah, wind collapsed and for many hours. Um, I don't have the stats off the top of my head. Uh, but what it would mean for us is if we didn't have the natural back gas backup, which we do have, and we're building a couple of thousand megawatt more gas generation, and if we didn't have the existing coal, which we do have, if we didn't have the import from Saskatchewan, Montana, and BC, we would have been toast. And the thing is with wind, um, 
wind and solar are typically regional phenomenon. So if there's a drop in wind in Alberta, that would be the same in Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan is also under tremendous pressure to abandon coal and not use any natural gas and to implement a whole bunch of wind. And of course, the theory of the clean grid, which uh, the east-west grid, which is a liberal platform, has been for a long time. Um, it's based on a probably on the Danny Harvey paper out of University of Toronto, where he proposed, and note, he's a geographer. He's not um, a power generation expert, and you can tell when you read the paper, yeah. because he yeah. thinks that um, an east-west grid uh, hooking up to uh, hydro in the provinces with lots of hydro and nuclear in Ontario and wind, mostly like 30% of the wind power, I think, was to come from Alberta, Um that um, we would have a very cheap, inexpensive power source. And you're hearing this being repeated by the clean, uh, what is it, Clean Energy Canada, the tides offshoot uh, by the Climate Institute. And their, their argument is like, oh, there's so much, uh, so many billions of dollars on the table for the provinces to be subsidized for this. You should just jump in and then you'll have cheap power. Well, all those billions of dollars of subsidies come from our pockets. So we'll be paying for these subsidies, not to mention, um, there's not enough power on the grid right now for the EV policy in Canada, period. There isn't enough power. So uh, if you're going to be electrifying houses and trying to hook up an east-west grid, I mean, look what happened in Quebec over the Christmas holidays, right? They got flattened by a big storm. And they, they have problems there now because they have electrified a lot of homes. Um, and they just don't have the capacity anymore. So how can we hope to draw from Quebec's big hydro to Alberta when they don't have enough there? And if the wind goes flat here, we'll all be in blackout. You know, and blackout is not only dangerous for humans, especially in the middle of winter, but it's catastrophically expensive for industry. You know, if you have some manufacturing process, many manufacturing processes have to run 24-7. They are not meant to be stopped. So if you have to stop, then you have millions of dollars of product that's kaput um, in hospitals. You know, they do have backup power for probably three or four days, maybe. But I think a lot of people in Quebec were out for a week or two, right? So it's it's deadly. It's a very bad idea. It, phenomenally expensive. We've got a number of reports like the true cost of wind and solar for Alberta, uh, clean electricity, delusion or reality. We've got quite a few reports online that help people understand why it's so expensive to do this and why it's so ineffective. So um, I don't know, there's like a freight train mentality at the top in government at the federal level and they seem to be unable to understand these very fundamental important things yeah and you know you can watch this stuff happen in real time there's a twitter account called reliable energy alberta i think it's called reliable it ab you. yeah yeah, reliable AB, and it shows you in real time. All it does, it's a bot, and all it does is tweet out what's on the Alberta grid at that moment. And you will see for yourself what an absolute pipe dream green energy is, especially, especially on a cold day. Take a look at that on a cold day or a hot day, and then 
look at what your life would be like without that fossil fuel backup on the grid. And it's not fossil fuel backup. It's fossil fuels on the grid. That's right. Yeah, you can look at the Alberta electric system offer operator as well. That's where the data comes from for reliable AB. And um, they have a new dashboard, <clears throat> which is also quite demonstrative. You can see the capacity, you know, because that's the other thing that people get confused about. People say, oh, look, we've got 5,500 something megawatts capacity of wind power. Well, we do. Okay, fine. But capacity is not actual generation. Like when it's not generating, we have nothing. It doesn't matter what, how many megawatts you've built because you don't have any power. So, um, you know, and uh, at one point last year, uh, there was an article in the Calgary Herald, I think, and they were quoting Blake Schaefer of the University of Calgary. And he was saying, well, this is great. You know, for the first time in history in Alberta, renewables outperformed coal. Well, we have like one or two measly little coal plants still running, putting out like 820 megawatts of power. And we had like 5,000 something megawatts of uh, renewables. So the coal was actually doing just 1% less than all these renewables over the course of the year. That's not a victory. That's a failure. Big one. Well, and... Of course, of course, at one point, coal is going to be surpassed by green energy. They banned the use of coal for electricity. So, you know, they're phasing it out. So, of course, it's government mandated decline of the coal yes. industry. We have 800 years of pretty clean burning coal under our feet, which seems ridiculous that we're stranding it. But yeah, if the government mandates the phase out of coal, at some point it will be phased out. And I think, unfortunately, for the ratepayer, we're getting there. Uh, before we move on to um, one thing I want to talk to you about that's very chilling, and that is this climate colonization of the banking industry, both here but also around the world, is an update to Justin Trudeau's flagship tree planting program. Um, which is such a farce because Canada, I mean, we're covered by the boreal forest. I think it's the world's largest continuous forest. And Justin Trudeau's idea was, you know what we need to do? We need to get the government to pay people to plant trees, even though industry already does it for free. <laughs> so <laughs> tell us what's going on with the tree planting program and why you think Justin Trudeau announced it in the first place. Well, you know, it's a debacle, really. And I did a little short video where I'm crawling around in the grass by my little tree that I thought was going to die. Um, and why I'm in the grass there is that most of the trees that they show on the Natural Resources Canada website that they've planted are being planted in very grassy places. And our forestry consultant tells us that, you know, grass will outdistance the tree 10 to 1, like it'll basically kill the tree. And when you plant trees, apparently about 30% of them don't survive. It's just, you know, mother nature, it doesn't matter how much you tend them, blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting with the tree planting program, they've posted a whole bunch of images of all these different projects that they funded. And uh, what I found very interesting is the money's going out. And then in these... Um, Reports they're saying, well, we hired a bunch, or we didn't hire, we, we got a bunch of volunteers to plant the trees. Well, you know, I mean, 
trees shouldn't cost a lot of money. If you go to a company called Tree Time that's in Alberta, you can get little bundles of seedlings, and I got some this year, for a very, very cheap price. And um, they're frozen, and then you let them thaw out, and you plant them, and boom, you have a tree for very, very little money. So the government is paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then those people are getting volunteers to plant the trees. So where is this money really going? And uh, just to let you know, there's another thing that's coming to Alberta, or not to Alberta, to Canada, called the One Trillion Tree Org. Well, this is a project of the World Economic Forum, of course, um, and it's, uh, what's the guy's name? Benioff, Mark Benioff of uh, Salesforce. It was his idea. They want to plant a trillion trees, so they're getting people to... Uh, be involved in this. Well, you know, really it's a carbon credit project. <laughs> so, so if you're a, a messy polluter, then you can go to some tree planted place and say, Hey, why don't I buy your carbon credits? And then we can pretend that I didn't pollute. So I'll pay you some money. And, you know, so it's really just the lack of delivery of an invisible substance to no one trading hands, picking pockets of the consumer. And I think it's also very dangerous, like our forestry consultant pointed out a long time ago that, um, and you can see it in our burning questions report about coal in Alberta, um, that if you have a forest that is dedicated to carbon credits and you have a wildfire, somebody's going to have big liabilities. Now, who's going to pay for all those carbon credits that just poof, not only went up in smoke, but they also created more CO2. The consumer, always. <laughs> to answer your question, who's going to pay? Always yeah. the consumer. Um, these people just pass their costs along to everybody else. Um, no, no. Yeah, but we're talking uh, like millions uh, of dollars. A, sure. Yes. Yes. Um before we move on, I want to talk to you about this thing that seems pretty commonsensical, um, given what we've just, again, what we just lived through with COVID, where all the models were wrong um, and then and overblown and overheated and exaggerated and doomsaying. And uh, that's nothing new, actually, because all the models have always been wrong for climate change. And so our premier here in Alberta, common sense kind of lady named Danielle Smith said, uh, you know what? Uh, I don't trust the models that are consistently wrong. And CBC lost some marbles about it. Yeah, it was on Power and Politics, just a short clip a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and, uh, of course, the government modeling, and it comes from these ENGOs, of course, um, that are always trying to destroy our industry anyway. Um, they have projected that there will be almost no demand for oil and gas in the future, from, especially not from Canada because it's more expensive here, and also that the price of oil will be kaput. But uh, Robert Lyman just did a report for us that summarizes a report that was normally done by British Petroleum. Now they have a consulting firm doing the report. And of course, it shows nothing but that um, demand for oil and gas is expanding all around the world and coal. And it's expanding, of course, in all the non-OECD nations. And in the OECD nations, it's pretty much flatlined. But 
we sell our oil anywhere, right? We could sell it anywhere around the world. So if there's demand, why wouldn't we take advantage of that? It's a huge income earner for the country. So if you're going to phase out oil and gas, what are you going to use to replace that um, revenue? What do you, you know, that's the revenue that pays for healthcare, that pays for uh, big infrastructure projects, that uh, pays for the military, that pays compensation to Indigenous people. Like if we don't have the resource industry working on all cylinders, we don't have that substantial revenue. And it's certainly not going to come from other, you know, things like uh, banking industry or insurance. I mean, all those industries run on oil, gas and coal. They all need energy. So it's crazy. Anyhow, in the interview, um, Dan, uh, Premier Smith said, you know, she didn't trust the modeling. And of course, Alberta has been an oil and gas producer for decades now. So we have a lot of very smart people in government and industry who know world markets very well, far better than the people at CBC or the federal government, obviously. So, you know, it's hard to know, is it an internal trade war where actually uh, the Eastern oil and gas interests are trying to keep their share of the market because they're not suffering the same kind of blockadia that we are in the West. And, you know, a lot of the um, groups like uh, David Suzuki Foundation was funded by Power Corp and Power Corporation's interests are not in Western Canada. You know, they're international and certainly very deeply embedded in China. So, you know, uh, Let's just say that I think Premier Smith has her head on right. And the report by Robert Lyman called when the facts collide with climate alarm makes a lot of sense. So everyone should read that. I like how CBC is shocked that the developing world might want the same standard of living that the rest of us want. Uh, they, they seemed kind of taken aback but by the fact that they might want electricity and uh, autoclaves in their hospitals and cars and, um, you know, public transportation and, and hospitals public and sanitation. water treatment. Fresh water. Yeah, water treatment. <laughs> they seemed really taken aback by the fact that the developing world might just leapfrog over those things and just end up with, you know, driving electric cars um, in their, around their 15-minute cities. Uh, <laughs> the... Um, oh, now, I think you, you just briefly touched on the fact that the OECD countries seem to be flatlining with their oil and gas use. And I think that is, uh, in part, it has something to do with the government's mandating um, certain uh, lifestyle behaviors for us that drive up the cost of living. And I think the banks are propping that up and the insurance companies are propping that up and Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of Canada, now the climate czar at the United Nations has a lot to do with that. He, he, that this seems to be his thing is, um, social license in the banking industry. Uh, and I find this very chilling because with this push for digital currency and the banks adopting all these climate targets, what, where does that leave us? You know, especially, and then, you know, you look at that through the lens of what happened with the Freedom Convoy, where you could just have your bank account turned off because of your politics. Where does it leave us? Could, is, are we marching towards you could have your bank account turned off because you used you drove a little too far and ate a little too much meat? 
Uh, yes, I, I'm sure that we are marching directly toward that because one of the things that Mark Carney was interested in in uh, implementing for many years now is a digital currency. And the theory was that somehow this would stop climate change. Now, of course, imagine that there's some massive supercomputer counting every little thing that you and I buy and use every place that we go to make sure that we have a personal carbon ration that is not exceeded. Um, well, the only way that it makes sense to have this huge supercomputer that's draining all the energy in the world to count every carbon molecule of yours and mine is if they're at the same time limiting every single thing that you use or consume or do. So um, that that is the objective. And I did a presentation for the Alberta Prosperity Project a few months ago, and it was about lockdowns. And it's interesting that in 2020, now, no, sorry, in 2016, there was a report written called Deadline 2020. In that report, for the major cities, they were planning that people should only have a 2.9 ton carbon, uh, you know, CO2 equivalent carbon footprint. Uh, that's about the level of the people who live in Cuba. So in Canada, we typically have a personal carbon footprint of about 17, 16 tons. So imagine reducing your life style, your heating, your food consumption, your travel to 2.9 tons CO2 equivalent from 16 or 17. So, you know, that would simply be deadly for us. Well, and to think that this is a conspiracy theory, I mean, it's really not because this is already happening at the industrial level, right? They, they deny financing or insurance to major oil and gas projects because they are not complying with whatever the bank has decided the climate targets are. And those seem to be the ones from the UN. So this is already happening to big corporations. It's hard to feel sorry for big corporations, but I feel sorry for the people who work at those big corporations. Those are jobs. Those are families. And so why wouldn't they do this to us? We're the little guys. Well, and the thing is with the big corporations, as we mentioned before, they can either get into the carbon trading markets and, and pretend that they're not emitting, um, or they can move offshore, which is why there's been a decline in energy use in North America because a lot of, and, and in the other OECD countries, because any energy intensive com company has left, you know, like steel manufacturers in the UK left for India. No brainer, uh, you know, and really, I have to say that uh, people keep thinking that, you know, this is all about climate change and saving the planet. But actually, what if it is part of the Chinese hundred year plan to take over the world? And we're just playing along with it. You know, can anyone see it from a geopolitical point of view that if all of the Western countries are being uh, gutted and economically damaged and one country in the world has a plan called Made in China 2025. And it's a plan that also wants to um, take over all the rare metal, metals of the world. And they're already doing this to Europe. They're already um, 
I guess, ext using extortion on Europe with regard to the uh, uh, rare metals that China supplies to Europe. So, you know, that will shut down certain forms of manufacturing there. Like, why don't we ever look at this from a geopolitical point of view and say, hey, you know what, maybe climate change actually is a, an economic trade war against the West. <laughs> maybe we should stop playing this game for a while and sort this out first. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's that's sort of how I look at the the climate change agenda. You look to see who benefits through these policies to see, you know, really what the war is. And I, I think of climate change as just one battleground where we don't even realize we're fighting China for global supremacy. You know, we, again, I'm going to sound conspiracy minded, but if you look at TikTok, which is a Chinese app, it seems to be rewiring the brains of our young people to make them weaker, stupider, more woke and more vulnerable. <laughs> and once you look at, you know, social media, climate change and the economic uh really the, the takeover of what China's trying to do to the world. Um, they have a hundred year plan. They're fighting a war that we don't even know we're in. That's right. And not only that, you know, people have to realize that a lot of money from the West is sunk in China. So it's stuck there. Mm -hmm. So that's a very big lever. You know, Canada pension plan was financing uh, coal in China. So I'm sure all the Alberta coal workers who are on the skids now feel pretty good about that. Uh, you know, they're financing apparently uh, military equipment in China, which will be used against us. Uh, there's another book about China's domination of the pharmaceuticals of the world and how they very cleverly, you know, entered the markets, uh, had a lower price product, uh, ran people out of business in Europe and the U.S., and created market dominance for themselves. Well, now if you need pharmaceuticals and they're all in China's hands and a conflict breaks out between the U.S. and China, um, you know, they're going to have a very strong lever on the entire health of all the people in the OECD nations. Um, so, you know, they've been very clever in their strategies. I don't condone it. But, you know, you have to hand it to them that they've been thinking ahead and we haven't been thinking at all. Yeah. So, We've only been you know, and, and oddly, as you mentioned about the banks, you know, Bank of Canada is playing along with all this. They just recently issued a climate risk assessment. And uh, I did a video about it. You know, it's a ludicrous document. They have a whole bevy of people working on climate risk assessments all the time. And they're using an implausible model basis, RCP 8.5. And a woman named uh, Professor Jessica Winkle testified to the U.S. Uh, Senate um, recently. It was this spring. I don't exactly remember. Maybe March. That all of the basis for climate change modeling is conflicted. So you have um, consulting firms hiring IPCC lead modelers to concoct models that support the conclusions of the um, consulting firm. And in many cases, the firm is McKinsey, the world's largest management firm. Huh. So, you know, and if we recall, who did we have consulting in Canada? Dominique Barton of McKinsey, who was working for $1 a year 
for the Canadian government giving them advice on how to proceed for a new clean economy. <laughs> I wonder who that benefited. Well, yeah, nobody works for a dollar a year. <laughs> nobody. So, so there was payment in kind somewhere else. That's for sure. Um, now, one of the things, uh, let, let's just change lanes away from climate change really fast. Um, one of the things that you've been focused on is getting to the truth of the mass graves, um, which are not mass graves at all in many instances here in Canada. And it's difficult work to do because you're, you're digging through history, but you're also fighting censorship. And, you know, we've heard musings that you should make genocide denialism illegal in Canada. Um, tell us about some of your work to get to the truth about what happened at residential schools here in Canada. Well, first of all, I just want to mention this is a personal project of mine. So, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I worked with Dr. Hugh Dempsey on many documentaries back in the 1980s. I spent about a decade of my life in and out of the Glenbow Museum archives. Uh, I interviewed hundreds of Southern Alberta pioneers, historians, and uh, descendants of the early uh, pioneers and people who signed treaties. So, in my view, there was no genocide in Alberta. If anything, the Mounties came west and stopped the massacre of the Blackfoot Nation, which was going on by the whiskey traders who really didn't care about anybody. Uh, they were feeding them this horrible mixture of strychnine and whiskey and old tea. Um, you know, they were killing people. They were raping and pillaging, literally. The Assiniboine tribe was slaughtered prior to the arrival of the Mounties in the uh, Cypress Hills by the Benton Gang, which came over the border out of the United States. So what people don't realize is, you know, the U.S. was running Indian Wars from 1622 to 1924. Uh, the cavalry was actively pursuing Indian bands in the United States corralling them and murdering them. That never happened in Canada. That was not the interaction between First Nations people and the traders in Canada. It was always an economic, uh, convivial kind of arrangement. Uh, so, you know, we had about 300 years here of, of or if not more, of, of um, mutually beneficial trade. And then upon that, the treaties were built. So uh, I think that the the problem is that in many First Nations communities, there were a lot of people who died of TB. Or once the family died of TB, the children were sent to a residential school for care. They basically became orphanages. Uh, so if you look at it from that community's perspective, those people were missing. They disappeared. The place they went was to a residential school. So, uh, and they would have no reason to come back because there was no family left. They were orphaned. Um, you know, but over time, that element of fact would become lost. 
especially if the family was not buried with a headstone on reserve and if no one was there to care for it. You know, and these are very, very difficult times. These were times when everyone was extremely poor. So I think this is where the, the impression that there are thousands of missing and uh, buried children who uh, have no, um, no uh, documentation comes from. Because for people living on reserve or in a community, of course, there are these people who vanished. But if you look into the archival records, you find that there is very good documentation of who the person was. And yes, they were given a number. Yes, but that's so that all of their laundry could be done and tracked and all of their documents could be done and tracked. It's just the file number. It's not like at Auschwitz. It was never tattooed on anyone's arm. Um, but you find that the documentation is very good. You know the person's name, their family name, uh, their age. A lot of the children who came into care came in at age four, five, six. This is all under age, according to the government regulation. The only way they would come into that care is if they were orphaned, destitute, or uh, the family requested aid or the Indian agent requested aid if the family, say, was dysfunctional to save the life of the child. So um, then you have medical records for the child entering as well. They were examined before being entered into the school to see whether or not they had TB. That was a main thing to look for. Um, and uh, if they needed any kind of medical treatment. And then if, sadly, the child died, there is a death certificate. If they died at the school, there was an inquiry. Um, uh, statements were issued to the parents. And it may be that in some instances, people did not get the message in a timely way. Because some of the parents had their children intentionally put into residential schools because they're working on a trap line. They're going out hunting. That was their occupation. So it's much easier if your children are cared for and you're out in the bush. I mean, there's a really sad story. I don't know if I can find it off the cuff. There's a very sad story here in um, Eric Bay's book where he talks about, um, this is up at uh, Moose Factory, and he said the... Um, um, a father had come to the post at Albany to report there was no food in the tent. His wife was ill. While at the post, he took ill and he died. So the Hudson Bay Company manager sent out a couple of men with grub. And when they got to the tent, the mother was dead with five children around her. The youngest was a babe of two months, was taken in by a relative. The eldest was a boy of 16. He went with another relative to hunt. And the other three children came to the school. The youngest of the three died while at school during a flu epidemic. So, you know, imagine that. This is a story that happened more than once. Um, but all of those people were now missing, right? In the minds of the community, they're missing. We don't even know if that orphan baby grew up knowing that uh, its own mother had died. You know, we, so <laughs> we don't know how the son, the 16-year-old son, how would he remember that? He would remember that his siblings went to residential school and never came home. Um, so, you know, it's a very complex uh, history that we have, and we're, it's being swept away with the theme of genocide, uh, as if all of these... Uh, people who died were intentionally murdered. 
And that's really the fundamental thing about genocide. There has to be an intent to wipe out a population. Well, why would you build a residential school and staff it and bring food and, and, and organize events for hundreds, thousands, 150,000 children? Why would you do that if your intention was to wipe them out? Yeah, it's all portrayed very black and white in all of this, that this was entirely bad and there was no good. Uh, there weren't people with good intentions and in all of this. And it is, as um, as uh, Woke Watch Canada writes, quite likely will lead to a balkanization of Canada. And we've seen this. I mean, every it's becoming like this every Canada Day where now you can't celebrate Canada Day because of the history of residential schools. There's a, a push for um, reparations to be paid now to survivors of residential schools, but not just survivors, families, communities, people who are by and large not even affected by residential schools. Uh, and it just... I am concerned that it will fracture our country in a way that um, I think is both unfair and possibly irreparable. Um, I think that you're right. I think that real possibility exists. And um, I think there's two things that people should read. Um, one is, uh, this just came out on June the 20th, and it's the Justice Department's action plan for the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples to implement this act. And uh, basically it requires that everything in Canada now be aligned with UNDRIP, as it's nicknamed, um, and uh, be Indigenous-led. Uh, and the other thing people should know is that, uh, this is from the Fraser Institute by Dr. Tom Flanagan, that the reparations or compensation now being planned is in the order of $60 billion. So, uh, you know, people are being recognized for their statements of claim. However, people should also know that none of the recollections which are written in the Truth and Reconciliation reports uh, were ever cross-examined. These are statements from people um, who in some cases stand to gain $125,000 in compensation. So uh, never subjected to cross-examination, no evidence per se was required. Uh, so, you know, it's problematic because the entire country is being made to feel guilty of genocide when there's no evidence of genocide, when as Terry Glavin wrote in one of his articles, The Year of the Graves, he wrote that most of the claimed mass grave sites or unmarked grave sites were grave sites that were already well known to the local First Nations communities. So, you know, all of a sudden they all started popping up in the news as if no one ever knew there was a graveyard there or that there were unmarked graves. Well, yeah, everyone knew. So why did it become a media phenomenon? You know, what what is the end goal here? And I, I think one of the end goals actually does go back to the climate change issue, and that's um, nature-based solutions. So, excuse me, just let me get a drink here. 
nature-based solutions thing is the idea of, again, selling carbon credits on pristine, untouched forestry, water, blue carbon, uh, wetlands. And uh, supposedly that all the young people, rather than becoming doctors and scientists and astronauts, would go back to being uh, land keepers, land guardians, water guardians, uh, fire watchers, you know, in sort of a quasi-traditional uh, knowledge keeper way. Now, of course, there are some traditional knowledge aspects that are important to communities, they're important to development, and they should be respected. But, you know, we're basically creating an apartheid situation with this document that is more or less kind of the Garden of Eden, noble savage view of Indigenous people. When, you know, if you look at the residential school history, you find that um, the residential schools were turning out successful farmers, successful ranchers, successful managers, authors, artists, um, nurses. Uh, you know, there's a, a whole record of people who came out of Indian residential schools who are very, very competent. Um, and actually many of the leading figures, <laughs> even in the reconciliation thing, are people who graduated from residential school. And, you know, if you look and you see most of the population of Indigenous people in Canada can speak English to one degree or another, often very good. Well, that's a product of schooling and enculturation. So, you know, it's not like people didn't get some kind of a benefit. Anyway, if we have 600 and I think 32 distinct bands in Canada, um, and over 50 languages, uh, if this is going to lead the country, then we are definitely going to be balkanized. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that there were problems with residential schools. Some people did some terrible things. But I don't believe in collective guilt. If there are people who must be held responsible, even posthumously, let's do that. But we can't do that without a real fulsome examination of what really happened at these residential schools. And we've never done that. And the resistance is not coming from outside. It's coming from within. And I'm very curious as to why that might be. For example, at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, there has been no excavation there. And they're telling me this is the site of a major genocide. If that's a crime scene, I want it investigated and I want the people responsible to be named for eternity. But we're not doing that. And, and to say that there are no organizations capable of doing the heavy lifting there, you know what? The United Nations, for all of its flaws, it does a pretty good job investigating genocide. And why haven't they been called in? Why hasn't anybody been called in to deal with this? Well, actually... Um um, Francisco, no, Jose Francisco Calice, who is the UN uh, Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Human Rights, he has been here. He has been investigating uh, human rights violations, which would be fundamental to the um, future investigation that may happen because China 
has accused Canada of genocide. So that should trigger a UN investigation. But, you know, my problem with that is that it was a group of uh, terror bloc countries, and Terry Glavin is the person who brought this to everyone's attention. The charge was made the day after UNDRIP was uh, received royal assent in Canada, which to me is rather suspicious, and about three weeks after the Kamloops discovery hit the news. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's uh, problematic if you have uh, a, a nation that actually had a real genocide where they um, caused the death of about 40 million of their own people under Mao in the Great Leap Forward by starvation, by famine. It's problematic if that's the accuser of Canada of genocide. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's a very complicated issue and our, our MPs in the House of Commons have complicated it further because last fall on October 27th, they all voted unanimously that Indian residential schools were an act of genocide. There was no debate, nothing. They just passed it in like two minutes. So, you know, there's no evidence for it, but we've accused ourselves. And uh, it's going to be pretty hard to backtrack on that one, I think. Yeah, and we've got China who is actively engaging in a real genocide against Muslim Uyghurs and Christians, um, accusing us of genocide because we've accused ourselves of genocide. We can't say the Chinese are wrong about us because <laughs> they voted in the House of Commons. Um, That's it. Michelle, before... Before I let you go, because you've been very generous with your time, as always, um, you've started your own Substack, and I, I want to give you a chance to promote it um, because <laughs> it, it, it does something that I think is so necessary in all of these debates, and it, um, it's hopeful. <laughs> and we're so inundated with doom and gloom when it comes to climate change or COVID or the next pandemic or how apparently we're a genocidal state. We're the worst people on the face of the earth, according to China. Your Substack does the opposite. Well, I, I call it the climate of hope. So I basically am really heartbroken over what's happened with our young people, especially, but with many other people who feel this, you know, dark cloud over their head all the time. Whenever there's a disaster like the wildfires or whatever, it's always amped up into, you know, climate change. And this is the new normal. It's always going to be like this. You're always going to be running from wildfire and, um, and that's just not true. So I'm going to try and post some, you know, uh, informative items, something on the lighter side and uh, just try and help people climb down from that tree of fear. You know, there a lot of people are like kittens up a tree where they're terrified and they're stuck there. So I want to try and tempt them to come down the tree and, you know, have a nice warm bowl of milk and some crunchies and curl up and feel safe and comfy. So that's my goal. So I just started it. So there's not much posted there yet, but thank you. you. Know, I think it's much needed. I think it's much needed though. You know, when you flip on the TV or, uh, you know, your Twitter account even, and it's just 
nonsense. There's nothing climate change can't do to kill you. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> if you get all your news from the mainstream media and it's just so outrageous, you know, it's like, is climate change giving you an earache? Is climate change making the ticks bite you? And I wish I were making up the things I just said, but those are recent articles that I've read. Is climate change making you fat? Is climate change giving you heart disease? I mean, it's nonstop. Yeah. And the person to follow for all these ridiculous headlines is Don TJ90, D-A-W-N-T-J-90 on Twitter, because she's got a fantastic gallery of memes where she's just stuck together all these different headlines that are conflicting and ridiculous. And, you know, that if you read a few of those, it, it completely ends your climate fear right there. <laughs> <laughs> and... Again, before I let you go, let people know how they can support Friends of Science because you are just this little tiny, uh, scarcely funded group up against the deep pockets of foreign funded environmentalists and the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. You're trying to cut through the garbage to, um, to, to advocate for more reasonable policies and sensible debate on these issues. Uh, well, you can go online to uh, friendsofscience.org. Um, you can join us, become a member, you can donate, or you can just send a donation to by e-transfer to contact at friendsofscience.org. We're entering our 21st year of operation, so $21 would be a nice birthday present. Uh, I did want to mention we are going to have a live event in the fall. So it's called Break Free from Climate Tyranny. And um, you can see that on our main page on our website. And there's also an event page. So we're doing early bird ticketing right now for that. So uh, um, have a look at it. Very exciting. Those events, your live events are great. And the food is great. And the conversation is great. And the speakers are always really excellent. And it's just good to get back out in person after three years of no events whatsoever. Right. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, we'll have you back on again very, very soon. Thank you, Sheila. Have a good day, everyone. And uh, don't let the climate fear get you down. There's hope. Well, friends, we've come to the portion of the show where we invite your viewer feedback. It's why I give out my email address right now. It's Sheila at rebelnews.com put gun show letters in the subject line so i know that uh, your feedback is not just generalized hate mail <laughs> but um specifically to the show that i'm doing and last week's letter comes to me by way of somebody named micah and micah writes hi sheila big fan of your show here keep up the excellent work i definitely will as long as ezra will have me I have an idea for a show or perhaps a series of shows because the subject matter deals with Atlantic Canada. It may not be, be your wheelhouse necessarily, but maybe it would be of interest to one of Rebel's Eastern-based journalists. Well, we don't have a ton of Eastern-based journalists, but uh, I have a strong interest in Eastern Canada just because of where I live. And you would think, why would an Albertan care about what's happening in Eastern Canada? But we have so many of you Easterners here that at my little small town grocery store in Fort Saskatchewan, we have an 
aisle, our ethnic food aisle is actually maritime food. <laughs> so, so like we have your weird brands of crush and the big logs of bologna and salted fish and all those things that make you people feel at home here. And so we're glad to have you. And, you know, our pubs are often um, Atlantic kitchen style pubs, again, because there are just so many of you here. <laughs> and, um, you know, as they say, Fort McMurray is the largest town in Newfoundland. So a lot of you guys here, and I'm very interested in, in what happens there, but also th how, you know, that sort of the attacks on your industry here led you the attacks on your industry there led you here, and then uh, now they're attacking our industry here. So th things to consider. I'm currently on vacation in Newfoundland. Oh, lucky. It seems like almost everyone I talk to here has their own version of how and why the fisheries were shut down. Same thing with certain energy projects. Hmm. Maybe this has been done before, but I think it would be interesting to see a post-mortem play-by-play on all the events and political moves that led to the demise of the key industries in this province. Thank you for your time and for the work that you and the entire rebel team do every day. Warm regards, Micah. You know, Micah, that's a very interesting proposition. Something I would seriously consider um, because I can see how those sort of government overreach, government control on certain key industries there uh, caused problems in those industries and then drove people, like I said, out to the West where now government control is doing the same things to the new industries, which employ those uh, fun-loving Easterners. And uh, yeah, there's there's uh, a lot of dis different versions of the story. And I think there will always be a lot of different versions to every story. You know, how did Alberta end up basically underwater in the 1980s, thanks to Trudeau. There are a lot of different moving parts there. Um, but, you know, very interesting. And I think a, a very big part of Canadian history that is often overlooked just by the nature of demographics. So that there are not a lot of people on the East Coast in some of those communities that ended up just basically destroyed by the collapse of the fishery, the way that we're seeing communities out here in the West destroyed by uh, the government-mandated collapse in the coal industry. Um, but also just because they're so far away. <laughs> they're, they're just so darn far away. that um, Not to say that we forget that they exist. It's hard to forget they exist when you're in Alberta and there's so many Easterners here, but um, they're just far away. It's like talking about a town in the far for far north you don't often do that just because it's so far away from the center of the universe toronto so yes thank you for the idea and i will seriously consider it when i'm not doing a million other projects at the company but there's always time for one more isn't there well everybody that's the show for tonight thank you so much for tuning in i'll see everybody back here in the same time in this well it might not be in the same place i'm touring the documentary this week but from wherever i'm filming don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.